Today on the podcast, we give you some tips on how to break up your 130-year-old Fortune 50 company. And even if you're not the CEO of a 130-year-old Fortune 50 company, stick around, you might learn something. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. So it seems like spinoffs are the new cool thing to do in the corporate world. Johnson & Johnson announced it would be spinning off part of its business. Toshiba did the same. But the biggest spinoff news by far came from General Electric. The company founded in 1892 by none other than Thomas Edison himself announced earlier this month that it would be splitting itself into three separate companies, one focused on healthcare, one on aviation, and a third for energy. On paper, spinoffs like these can actually make a lot of sense. If you take a company with $100 billion in revenue and split it into three companies with $50 billion in revenue each, well, you do the math. But there are a lot of logistical and legal issues you have to face to make this kind of thing work, and that's what we're going to focus on. Today, I'm joined by three reporters from our newsroom who each wrote stories about some of the challenges GE is going to face as it attempts to trifurcate, and yes, that is a word, I looked it up, We're going to get into the environmental issues with Bloomberg Law's Daniel Moore and the tax issues with the tax desk's Michael Rappaport. But first, we're going to focus on intellectual property. Bloomberg Law's Kyle Johnner says splitting up the IP is going to be particularly tough given that GE regularly files around 2,000 patents a year. Yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of different assets. We've got the, uh, you know, patents, they are usually in the top 10, and now they've dropped off since they've been shrinking into the top 15 still um, as far as securing patents. Um, And then obviously every company has, especially a company that size, has a ton of trade secrets that they try and keep a lid on to the best extent they can. And then needless to say, a a brand that big has obviously got plenty of its own ramifications. So um, yeah, figuring out what assets um, are best served going with uh, which company will, will take some doing for sure. Yeah, and I mean, we'll get to this in a second, but there's also the logo, like that sort of cursive script logo that everyone knows. I mean, I'm sure you're thinking of it right now. We'll figure out what's going to happen with that in in a moment. But, you know, is it just a matter of like, uh, you know, okay, this is a health uh, related IP asset. So this is going to go to the health division and this is aviation. So is it that simple or could it get a little messy? It, it depends because um, a lot of these uh, GE businesses are kind of business to business, so it's not as consumer facing. Um, so um, I've had an attorney say, you know, it might make the most sense going, you know, with the, the most, you know, consumer facing of the brands will take the take the brand and that'll um, that'll help save them more effort. Whereas it's easier to rebrand when you're looking at a small number of commercial producers um, say, yeah, we're the people you used to know as GE. You don't have to do a you know multimillion dollar ad campaign. So that might have an effect. Also, some of the businesses may want to be associated with the brand more than others. I'm obviously not quite as strong as it may have used to be. And maybe some of the industries are things that people associate GE with less. So they might want to just do a full-on rebrand. So it just really depends what they want to do. Um, They could, of course, there's nothing preventing them from all keeping it. Um, There's a reason, though, that people or companies usually don't like doing that because if one company starts to go downhill and be known for a, a bad quality, they have no control over that whatsoever, and they'll have trademark rights, and you can't do anything about it. Um, which is why I'm a little surprised. Apparently, um, not too long ago, uh, GE spun off its uh, home care products line, and along with that, um, they granted 40 years of permission to use the GE brand. 
like it, it just goes to show that you can do anything really with it that you decide you want to. Um, and just you can write up any kind of agreement to assign those rights. Right. And, and that was another thing that you mentioned in your story that actually was really interesting was that it seems like the different businesses are going to be really incentivized to work with each other. Like this probably won't be an acrimonious thing where it's like, you know, the light bulb division is like, I want this uh, IP and the airplane motor division is like, no, I want it. Like it sounds like this could go relatively more smoothly than you would think. Yeah. And first of all, a lot of the IP is business specific. So you've got, you know, the aviation people have a, an, a wing designer and engine design and the healthcare division doesn't care. So a lot of those, you know, tens of thousands of patents are just going to be go to their natural home. Um, There's technologies that in theory could be cross business and also also stuff that, you know, on the corporate side where, you know, it systems that, that cross, cross those boundaries that'll have to be figured out. Um, But yeah, trying to nickel and dime, like (laughs) nickel and dime their way through the divorce doesn't make a lot of sense because they're going to have to, they're going to have to divvy it up before they're separate entities. So litigation doesn't even make sense. Um, the one type of litigation that one attorney brought up to me was, you know, if they if they dally too long and hold up the, the split and they're able to make an argument that, hey, this is in bad faith, you're hurting the company, then shareholders could sue. But um, for the most part, it, it they are all anything that would help any of the businesses. They'll probably try to provide some sort of access because they probably want it reciprocated on their end as well. All right, and then the last thing I wanted to ask you really briefly, let's talk about the logo. It's pretty famous. It's pretty iconic. Who gets it? You know, it's it's hard to say, and I'm I'm certainly not a GE expert by any stretch of the imagination. Um, like I said, they uh, they could decide no one wants it uh, for all I know, but uh, with a logo that well-known, probably not. It'll probably go to the more, you know, consumer-facing, the most consumer-facing brand uh, would, would seem to make, make the most sense given the, you know, ad expenditures to uh, re-educate the public um, as far as, you know, who they are and what they do. So um, that that's the, other than that, they've said that, they've said themselves that they don't know exactly how it's going to be handled. So that makes sense. Uh, okay, Daniel, let's uh, turn to you now and talk about the environmental issues at play here. Um, we've seen this kind of thing before where there's a company with, you know, a lot of environmental liabilities, uh, and they split up into several different companies. Is, is this going to be a situation where one of the spinoff companies, the spinoff companies will get all the liabilities and the other ones won't? Yeah, it very well could be. That's the big question right now. Um, GE is a very big company. It's very sprawling. Um, this process is much like the IP question too. How which units get what liabilities? GE has a lot of liabilities in nuclear decommissioning, for example. There are a lot of costs associated with shutting down a nuclear plant, right? How how do we dis- dispose of the waste? Being one of the big questions. Um, there are a lot of facilities that have industrial waste um, that have left an industrial waste footprint. Have chemicals that GE is trying to clean up. There are major liability questions with GE, and we don't really know exactly how they're going to spread those out. They could stick one of the entities with all of the liabilities. I don't know if that makes much sense, or they could divide them equally if, you know, say one of the entities wasn't necessarily responsible for causing the liability itself. So that's an open question, but it's a big question that a lot of people are asking right now. Right. And the reason why uh, I bring this up, and I think you you mentioned this in your story that you wrote with Pat Rizzuto recently, uh, is that we've seen this before with uh, DuPont, 
DuPont had a lot of environmental liabilities. They split off uh, another entity called Chemours, which basically uh, inherited most, if not all, of those liabilities. Uh, and now Chemours is struggling to hang on uh, as a company and facing lots of lawsuits. Is that something that could happen here? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard to quantify the total number of liabilities GE has, but you know they've set aside about two point five billion with a B um, as of the end of twenty twenty for environmental re- remediation, nuclear decommissioning, and worker exposure claims as well. And so they have a large amount of liabilities. Um, they have these three entities, and I think the concern among energy analysts is that if you stick it with just the energy unit, um, they may not be able to handle all of the liabilities. They may not have the sufficient revenue to kind of continue to address all of that. That was the other thing about your story that really grabbed me was that it sounds like environmental activists are actually worried about this. They really want this new GE energy division to succeed because it sounds like they're a really, really big player in the renewable energy sector. And they're worried that if you know GE Energy goes belly up, that that would really set renewable energy back. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. This gets to the uh, the immensity and the legacy of General Electric again. I mean, we, the company has origins dating back to Thomas Edison and the light bulb, and now it's very much at the center of this 21st century energy transition to a decarbonized economy. And so, you know, the company's faced a lot of criticisms uh, over the years and decades from environmental groups for the fact that it's built fossil fuel turbines. It's left behind a lot of these environmental footprints, obviously, at at its manufacturing plants. Um, But it's got an enormous position in the energy world, and that includes renewable energy. So it's a huge supplier to the wind business, for example. Uh, GE has installed more than 400 gigawatts of wind, solar, hydropower, and other renewable assets. And so um, it also has a digital grid technology division that makes these components for the grid that help, you know, renewable energy resources connect. And so it's got all these different assets. Um, it's very much embedded in renewable energy. And it's also doing a lot of research, too. It's it's researching um, hydrogen resources. How do we, you know, what's the promise of hydrogen um, as a replacement for natural gas or to be blended into the natural gas supply. You have all of that happening. And so if GE's energy business um, is weighed by liabilities or struggles more than it is right now, you could face, um, you know, GE could struggle to contribute to those clean energy goals. All right, finally, let's turn to Michael Rappaport from the tax desk. Um, Mike, uh, it sounded like GE may be able to avoid paying taxes on these spinoffs. How is this possible? Can you explain that to me? I don't understand how they can not pay taxes here. Well, the the tax laws do impose taxes on corporate spinoffs. And in fact, GE has said it expects to incur up to uh, about $500 million in tax costs, not from the spinoffs themselves, but from costs related to the restructuring uh, needed to separate the company's global operations. But the law also says that a spinoff can be tax-free if you meet a bunch of requirements. Because remember, we're talking here not just about taxes for the company, but taxes for its shareholders. And a company is not going to want its, its own shareholders to be subject to additional tax costs based on its corporate restructuring. So the, the requirements a company has to meet for its spinoff to be tax-free boil down to three things. It has to be an ongoing business that's being spun off. 
at odd. The parent company has to be relinquishing control over the spun-off businesses, and the spin-off has to be for a legitimate business purpose, not just to distribute a, a, a subsidiary's uh, profits to its shareholders. And GE says that purpose is to unlock growth and value to all three of the units and to make them more flexible and better, better uh, able to tailor their business decisions at, at each of its units. So all three of those uh, conditions seem to be satisfied here. Interesting. Um, so I, I guess I understand that because it it sort of provides or it it removes a disincentive for companies to spin off and, you know, everyone can be for the better, theoretically, I guess, if these companies are separated. Uh, however, it sounds like based on some of the folks that you talk to, they may not be able to meet some of these requirements for some of their spinoffs. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, about why this tax-free spinoff plan may actually not end up working for GE? Well, it, it's not so much that the company might fail to get tax-free treatment as it is the fact that there are a few questions uh, and and, uh, and aspects of the spinoffs that could raise questions in the minds of the IRS and that the company is going to have to address and explain to the IRS before the IRS agrees to grant, you know, grant uh, tax-free status. Uh, one of those potential obstacles is the fact that GE plans to uh, retain a 19.9% stake in, a, in its spinoff healthcare unit. Uh, companies typically divest completely during a spinoff, and GE will have to explain uh, to the IRS why retaining a stake is a good idea. They'll have to prove to the IRS that this is not about any, any attempt to avoid taxes in any way. Uh, another potential obstacle is that uh, Larry Culp, uh, the CEO of GE, is going to uh, serve as non-executive chairman of the healthcare company while he continues to serve uh, as head of GE, and then after the f- spinoffs are complete, the part of the parent company that remains after the spinoffs. The, the IRS doesn't like those kind of overlaps between boards and senior leadership. So GE is going to have to explain to the IRS why they think that's a good idea and why that's necessary. And, and also, the, um, the healthcare spinoff has plans to issue debt. Um, Congress right now is considering potential restrictions on leverage spinoffs of, of, of that type. And if those were enacted, that could affect the tax-free nature of GE spinoffs. All of that said, none of these, in, in the view, views of the, some of the people I talked to, seem to be obstacles that GE necessarily wouldn't be able to get past at the end of the day. I mean, and, and the company seems optimistic. They, they, they've said that their process is aligned with similar spinoffs by other companies in the past, and they think that, that at the end of the day, they will be able to get tax-free treatment for their spinoffs. That's really interesting. Um, finally, tell me about how the IRS looks at this. Is this something that has been consistent for a long time, where companies have always been able to sort of do these tax-free spinoffs? Or is this something where the IRS's view is kind of changing here or evolving? Well, the, the current state of play is that companies get approval from the IRS for tax-free, treat, treat, uh, tax-free status of their spinoffs through what are called private letter rulings. The company makes a request to the IRS for an, an individualized legal ruling about whether a particular transaction, their transaction, can pass muster as tax-free. And the IRS then, then says, yay or nay. GE said in its own statement that the, that the transactions rely on, its spinoffs rely on obtaining those kinds of rulings from the IRS and getting legal opinions from its own counsel. Uh, now, there have been a lot of these kinds of cases in recent years of companies seeking approval for tax-free spinoffs through private letter rulings, and that's that, that, a lot of rulings issued by the IRS, enough so that the IRS has been preparing a package of regulations intended to address this issue and intended to address companies' questions about this process. They call it a one-stop shop. They, it's, it's supposed to uh, bring together various pieces of legal guidance for companies on, on the tax treatment of spinoffs. And they have uh, indicated they see it as a priority. They want to get it out sooner rather than later. Uh, if that happens soon enough, and, and the time frame for these kinds of regulations is often very long, but if they get it out soon enough before GE seeks approval for its spinoffs, 
they could uh, the spin-ups could fall under those regulations. I see. All right, well, that was Michael Rappaport uh, with the tax desk, Daniel Moore with our environment desk, and Kyle Johnner with our IP desk uh, speaking to us. Uh, thank you guys so much. This was really interesting. And that's another episode of On the Merits in the Books. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor is Cheryl Sines. And our executive producer is Josh Block. Reach out to us on Twitter if you have anything on your mind. We use the handle at BLaw. Thanks for listening, everyone, and have a wonderful Thanksgiving. You don't need to be a judge to be interested in our nation's laws and legal institutions. Just like you don't need to have a law degree to be curious about the inner workings of courts, law firms, and law schools. That's where we come in. My name's Adam Allington, and I'm the host of Uncommon Law, a podcast from the Bloomberg Industry Group. Uncommon Law is where public policy, storytelling, and the law are combined. We explore big topics ranging from tech policy to free speech to race and gender diversity. So please give us a listen. You can subscribe and download today. Just search for Uncommon Law wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much.